If you're a member of the Mormon Church, you probably know who John DeLynn is. And if you know who he is, well, there's probably no middle ground in your thinking. On the one hand, you probably think that he's a, a great thinker. You really like and admire him. On the other hand, you might think that he's misguided, that he's a troublemaker, and that he leads people astray. Well... I got together with John DeLynn for this episode of the Let's Go Eat show. John is a psychologist, a personal counselor. He's a social activist, a blogger. He founded the very popular podcast Mormon Stories, as well as other Mormon-themed podcasts. He's a busy man, and he's even busier now that he's been excommunicated from the Mormon church. He has a lot of people who look up to him, and he has a lot of people who revile him. Uh, but when I sat down with him over some French fries and we chatted, I found him to be a very charming, engaging, and a very thoughtful and intelligent fellow. Uh, we had a great conversation. I found that I, I like John DeLynn, although you probably would suspect that. But I think even if you are a, a, a ver still in the Mormon Church, you're a very, uh, a very strong member of the Mormon Church. If you just sat down and talked to John DeLynn, you'd find that he's very likable. You, you, you can't deny that. And he's a very deep thinker about issues having to do with a personal choice and having to do with the LDS Church and people's place in it and his place in it and the Mormon Church's place in the world. He had some pretty provocative things to say about the church and its future. He had some pretty provocative things to say about his future, and we had a great discussion. So without further ado, let's get to it. His name is John Parkinson DeLynn. We sat down at 50 West. Uh, thanks to the staff there for helping out. Thanks to Dylan Allred for producing the Let's Go Eat show. And without further ado, John DeLynn. So, uh, John DeLynn, uh, nice to see you. Thanks. It's good to uh, be here. The Let's Go Eat show, John DeLynn, uh, apostate John DeLynn. <laughs> Thank you. Thank uh, you very you're much. welcome. Uh, and uh, I want to find out what an apostate really is because I don't know. Um, I got thinking about that this afternoon before uh, we were going to talk. But John DeLynn, uh, known as um, uh, a, a a, a podcaster. I guess that's where you became kind of most well-known to people as a podcaster and the creator of Mormon stories and uh, doing podcasts about and talking to people about issues having to do with the Mormon church. Uh, you were, uh, I, I think that's what I knew you m mostly as, and I didn't know that you were a uh, uh, a psychologist, and, and you had a, a doctorate in, uh, in in psychology, right? That's right. Um, and I, I had no no idea of any of that. I thought you were more a Mormon scholar when I first heard about you. Wow. Um, uh, so let's talk about how all of that came about. Uh, you grew up uh, in uh, Texas mainly, born in Idaho, then grew up in Texas. How did that happen? Wow, you've done your homework. Well, it's not that hard. <laughs> I have the internet. Yeah, my my parents are from Idaho and Utah, mm -hmm. and uh, we were part of what I think was called the diaspora, where kind of the Mormons in Utah and Idaho started fanning out uh, across the United States. And so, yeah, my dad m moved us to Texas when I was probably two, and 
Um, Did he do that just for work? Yeah, yeah. He he kept getting promoted and. What was he? What was his? He started out as a cop, as a policeman. He worked for the California Highway Patrol, riding around a motorcycle like Eric Estrada. <laughs> chips. Um, yeah, chips. But he eventually made his way up, kind of into mid-level management, and ended up working for the federal government in in sort of uh, safety, traffic safety kind of stuff. So that moved us to Dallas. We were there five years, and then he struck out as an entrepreneur. So we moved to Houston. When he opened up a new business. Uh, you said you lived in Katy, Texas. Is yeah. that a suburb or is that a little... Yeah, little Katy's a, a, I love western, the name. a western... Yeah, it's a western suburb mm. of Houston. Yeah. Houston's so big. Mormon uh, <clears throat> Mormon family, a long line of Mormons. Super Mormon family. Yeah. So my, my mom uh, is a descendant of Ezra T. Benson and Samuel Rose Parkinson, both of which are sort of early... Mormon apostle pioneer kind of people. Mm-hmm. So, so my mom was was born and raised in Franklin, Idaho, which is right near Preston. Right, where Napoleon Dynamite was filmed. Yeah. But uh, they're still with us. Your your folks? Yeah, they're eighty one ish. And where are they now? Here in Utah. Yeah. How do they still talk to you? Yeah, yeah. No, actually, my mom and dad both uh, sort of testified at my disciplinary council. They both were witnesses on my behalf. On your behalf? Yeah. So they've always been kind of love love your kid first and ideological differences second. You in a big family? I'm the youngest of four. Uh, are your uh, siblings still staunch in the church? My two... Yeah, I'd, I'd, they're all active in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... There are varying shades of belief at this point, but all still committed, raising their kids in the church. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I'm the only member of my immediate family who's left the church. So, uh, so you, so you grew up going to church and and loving the church and uh, the LDS church. And uh, you, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? What you became? No, I wanted to be something related to religion. So I think in high school I settled on being a, a military chaplain because I, I thought maybe like a church education system kind of seminary teacher kind of thing, but I knew that was hard to get. So chaplain was something I could do where I could get paid to do something related to religion. So that was my early idea. Then by the time I was in college, I think I settled on going to law school becoming a lawyer or politician mm-hmm. and then i kind of worked on capitol hill for a summer in that, dc in dc got disillusioned by the corporate special interest sort of influence on politics and and uh, changed course <laughs> uh went on a mission some at some point served a mission in guatemala yeah um and loved it but also that was sort of the some of the early cracks in my testimony came on my mission that happens a lot to people who go on a mission, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, sometimes people don't either don't finish their mission because the cracks are really big, mm-hmm. or they come back and uh, and almost don't even go to church again after they get back, or very quickly drop out of there. All of my uh, high school friends I, I I hung out with, all good Mormons, all went on missions, came back, and are all have all left the church now. Yeah, what is it about? What is it about a mission that makes that happen? Do you think? Well, in my in my case, I had a wonderful mission. I had I was branch president twice. Uh, 
Zone Leader had a lot of success, but for me particularly, my, my mission was sort of a real extreme case of the church gone wrong. My mission president, Gordon Romney, who is a cousin of Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. was, I think by all accounts, really ambitious. He wanted to become a general authority. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted uh, our mission to be the highest baptizing mission in the world. And so he started promoting missionaries that would use really unsavory and deceptive tactics to get large numbers of baptisms. So there was a companionship in our mission that had over 40 baptisms in a month. That's more than one a day, right? Wow. Yeah, that's that's sort of not possible, really, ethically, is it? Yeah, so they would go to the poorest you know, area of town, play soccer with a bunch of barefoot Guatemalan impoverished kids. And then after everyone was hot and sweaty, they'd say, hey, let's go back to the church and cool off. And they would baptize. Take a, take a dip in the pool. They'd baptize eight to ten little ten-year-olds at a time. And they'd party the rest of the week and then do it again. And so they could get forty, about 40 baptisms a month. And oddly enough, instead of the mission president saying, whoa, there's something fishy going on here, he promoted them to assistance to the president. And then they started touring the mission, kind of teaching other missionaries to do similar things. And so we became the second highest baptizing mission in the world. So Chile, Viña del Mar, was baptizing over 1,000 people a month. We were baptizing somewhere around 700 with 200 missionaries. So that's astronomical growth. And so I... I, I was a real devout, sincere believer. So when I learned about this kind of stuff, I, I thought I'd go to the mission president that I would tell him, Hey, this is really troubling. And this is a problem that he would get mad and, you know, bust those elders and fix mm-hmm. everything. But he instead yelled at me and told me that I was defying leadership and defying authority and, and kicking it, you know, sure. just stepping outside of my appropriate realm. And that's, and so I wasn't expecting that. So I got punished for trying to call attention to what was going on. And and uh, I ended up getting sent home four months early with the excuse of it being kind of sick leave. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I could have finished my mission, but I didn't. I I went ahead and transferred to Arizona and finished my mission in Arizona. But I I tried to contact church headquarters to say, hey, there's some really bad stuff going on here. And oddly enough... Their response was, well, he's only got like six more months of his mission to go, so we are we don't want to make a big scene. And and that was the very first moment where I asked myself whether the fish was kind of rotting from the head, so to speak. Was, was, this, ever, um, was this ever brought to light? And um... I, I wanted to take it to like 20, 20 or 60 minutes or something, but I had professors at BYU that are like, you're never going to make positive change if you paint yourself as a, a critic of the church. So let's handle it inside. So I got several professors to help me draft a letter. We sent it to Elder Oaks, who was an apostle at the time. And uh, he, oddly enough, he while I was on my internship in Washington, D.C., he made a personal phone call to me, apologized for what went on, told me the steps that he was going to take to keep this from ever happening again. And showed a lot of love. And honestly, I think that kept me in the church for another 15 or 20 years. And, and, and they did deal with it internally. They tried to, although this still happens. This kind of stuff still happens all the time, everywhere. But it's almost impossible to stamp out. But 
they certainly made me feel validated and supported in my concerns. And what became of uh, uh, Romney? Do you know? He, when he got home from his mission, he was asked to be on the missionary committee for the church. Sure he was. Yeah. So I, that was deeply troubling to me. But he never made general authority, so Mm -hmm. I don't know if I had any influence in that. But I certainly. Probably. There were many, many years where I feared that that would happen. And that if that had happened, I would have. Yeah. It would have been a real problem for me. But fortunately, it never did. So. So, so you went on in, in the church, and you went on with your education. You became a psychologist. Uh, well, no. I started out um, in high tech. So I, yeah, I, saw, I yeah. saw that you worked for Microsoft for, mm-hmm. some, for quite yeah. some time. So I started out with Bain & Company, which was Mitt Romney's firm. Bain, yeah. As a management consultant. Then I went to Arthur Anderson, which was an accounting firm. And then I went to Microsoft. And I just kind of rode the tech wave. And I loved that. And... But it was in Seattle where I um, was working for Microsoft where I was called as an early morning seminary teacher. And uh, I wanted to be a really good teacher. Church history was coming up as the subject. And I uh, started studying church history in depth so that I could be a really good seminary teacher and do an effective job. And that's when I I thought I knew church history because I, you know, had read a few books. and Yeah. But I'd never really studied deeply the church's history. And that's when I started studying it in depth, and that's when everything fell apart for me while I was working for Microsoft. How this many is, years ago was that? This was about 15 years ago, mm-hmm. so around 2000, 2001, uh, 2002. So by 2002, I was in a full-blown faith crisis, and I went to my wife, and I said, I don't think the church is what it claims to be, and and what are we going to do? And we had three kids at that point, and... Raising them in the church? Raising them totally devout in the church. How, how old were they at the time? Oh, Little? yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably one, four, and seven, you know, mm-hmm. that, that sort of age. Mm-hmm. We've had one more son since. But that was, you know, and, and at the time it occurred to us to leave the church uh, fully. But I just loved it. It's crazy. I loved it too much. Well, what is it that you found out studying the history? And please, eat, eat some French fries while you're... So I can chew and chew in. Yeah, the, it's it's okay. The it's, ears it's, of all our it's listeners. It's called the Let's Go Eat Show. Yeah, <laughs> Have etiquette. Some don't worry fry. about etiquette with this. My son right. hates it that we that we. I'm eat, downing these fries that we eat during the show. But I listen. I believe in eating and talking. That's what we do. I'm I'm in. I'm uh, all so in. so what what is it that you are, as you're studying uh, the history of the church? Um, that what is it that you're? And this is this is history that is available to any member of the church who chooses to to look into it in the church archives and uh, uh, it's not it's not anything that they're hiding what is it that you're finding that gives you this crisis of faith so this is this is going to sound kind of crazy to people now because the church has worked so hard to start to come clean on these issues but it was around 2001 2002 I'm here in Orem, Utah, with my wife, visiting my cousin, who's a dermatologist. And he says, did you know uh, that, you know, the book of Abraham that you, this part of your scriptures? I'm like, yeah. He said, did you know that they they uncovered the papyra that that, that, that book of Abraham was based on? And I was like, oh, no, I didn't know that. He said, yeah, that it, they kind of surfaced around 1960 after having been lost for maybe over a century. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. 
And he said, did you know that they had Egyptologists translate that papyrus to see whether or not Joseph Smith's translation of the papyrus um, was accurate? I'm like, no, I had no idea that this had happened. And he's like, yeah. And you know what the Egyptologists sort of determined was that the papyrus had nothing to say about Abraham, that Joseph Smith kind of made up the book of Abraham claiming that it was a translation when it wasn't. And it was actually to, a shopping list. It was just the yeah, exactly. groceries, yeah. milk, eggs, yeah, nothing to me. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe in 2016 people are like, oh, we all knew about that. But back in 2001, 2002, mm-hmm. I had been through 31 years of church education. No one had told me that story. I'd never stumbled on that story, you know, anywhere. So uh, that was like, that was a huge, because that's scripture. That's not just like... That's not just like folklore. That's part of our canon. Mm-hmm. So that started me. But then I then I started studying like polygamy, mm-hmm. and I had, I had knew I had known that Brigham Young was a polygamist, and I had heard some rumblings about Joseph Smith, but I I, I did not know that he had over thirty wives. No one had ever mentioned any wife other than Emma in any of my, you know thousands of hours in church education no one had ever mentioned uh, an additional wife but of course i had no idea that he had married 14 15 16 year olds and that he had married women who were already married to other men and in some instances would send these men on missions and then propose to their wives while they were sent away right like that kind of stuff I had never heard, and I think most Mormons had not heard, and to this day, many don't. Yeah, we did well, an episode with um, with the woman who did the paintings of all the wives. The Forgotten, oh, yeah. uh, the forgotten Wives I forget her of name. Joseph Smith. But, uh, Very Peterson. interesting. Uh, her, her name is Peterson. Yeah. Oh, um, but, but surely you knew that there, were, that there was a break apart of the LDS Church, and there was the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the reason the church broke apart was because of Emma Smith, and and she wanted to have her, she wanted to have Joseph Smith's son be the the next leader of the church, and 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 also she didn't care for polygamy. I think I knew bits and pieces of that, um, but. You know, when I read Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History, mm-hmm. um, you kind of need someone to to kind of put all the pieces together and to paint a narrative that's plausible. Yeah. Because you're indoctrinated. You know how, like, you go through China and you see the pictures of Mao or you go through, like, Russia and the Stalin? Like, there's so much cultural praise towards yeah. Joseph Smith that he's almost Teflon in your mind in terms of mm-hmm. ascribing any negativity at all. And so, yeah, you can hear bits and pieces, but none of that penetrates your commitment to the church because you're so indoctrinated into worshiping this guy mm-hmm. that it takes someone like Fawn Brody who can put all these pieces together and paint a picture where you're willing to, for the first time say, maybe this wasn't a great guy. Like maybe he had good things about him, but maybe he was actually, more of a con man than a prophet and i hate using those terms because they offend people yeah but i think if you look at his track record of like people losing their life savings and investments with him if you look at him sleeping with 14 15 16 year olds like 
you can only what comparisons do we have other than Jim Jones or David Koresh or you right. know people of that nature because that's the kind of stuff he was doing. Well, right? and I wanted I wanted a question I wanted to ask you was along these lines was um, I've heard that before uh, he kind of founded the church, he had been like convicted of fraud, right? Yeah, I mean that was that was something that I had never been taught growing up. Just that. You know, you read Michael Quinn's, you know, book, uh, Mormonism in the Early Magic Worldview or something like that, that that he and his family were were superstitious, that they engaged in treasure digging, that Joseph Smith could convince people that he could find buried treasure. And he would lead people on these expeditions where he would put a stone in a hat and walk through the forest and take them to a spot and say, look, within this mountain or within this ground i can see buried treasure and and i didn't know that and that that he was uh held in a court of law for sort of engaging in these types of practices for defrauding people and uh i had no idea that that was sort of the basis for his early explorations and that becomes more relevant because if you look at the book of mormon itself something the church hid for a long time was that that same stone in the hat that he used to lead people on ill-fated treasure digging expeditions. It was that same stone in the hat that he claimed to translate the book of Mormon from golden plates. Mm -hmm. And so that taints for me and for many people, the book of Mormon, right? Because it's so tied to his early years as a treasure digger. And by the way, there's no account of him ever finding any buried treasure, even though people paid him to find it and believed that he had special powers. So what kind of person can convince people they have special powers to find buried treasure, having never found any buried treasure? It's got to be someone who can convince people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise a very do powerful, or believe. A very powerful Super human powerful. being. Super yeah. powerful. A very powerful human being. Yeah. Con man con uh, stands for confidence. Yeah, exactly. He could... Instill confidence. Yeah. Um, so, so you start doing this study, and and all these things come to light, and they shake your your uh, faith in the church, but you stay with it. Um, and then, when did you start studying psychology? Yeah. So, and why did you start studying psychology? So, what happened was, I'd go around to my friends at Microsoft who are Mormon. And I'd be like, have you heard about Joseph Smith? Have you heard about the Book of Abraham? Have you heard about, you go, you know, the stone in the hat? And they were all like, either like, had never heard of it, or like, don't talk about this. This is anti-Mormon lies. Or they were like, yeah, I know about this stuff, but I can't tell anyone because if I tell anyone, my wife will leave me or my family will disown me. Or So there was just this ignorance or fear or deep secretive shame how did your wife react to this a lot of times things like this does tear husbands and wives and families apart yeah i in that sense i hit the lottery because i um when i really knew that the church wasn't what it claimed to be i i just said hey margie i don't think the church is what it claims to be immediately tears streamed down her face but then I said, will you just read this one book? And to her credit, instead of like saying, oh, it's anti-Mormon, she, she said, okay, I'll read it. And she read, No Man Knows My History. And uh, that's all it took. 
as soon as she was done reading that book, she's like, all right, I'm with you. What are we going to do next? Mm-hmm. So I'm really lucky that, that yeah. way. Yeah. That book has been out there for oh, years. 60, when, 50, when, 60 years. When I was a kid, Fawn, Fawn McKay Brody. When I, I read it when I was a kid. You did? Yeah. Yeah. I read it when I was, you know, in junior high school, I think. Yeah. My mother gave it to me, I believe. Yeah, it's a great book. <laughs> yeah. So when I was finding all these, trying to talk to people about these problems, people would start coming to me saying, I'm miserable, I'm gay, but I'm in a heterosexual marriage, or I'm addicted to porn or masturbation, and I, um, you know, my wife thinks I'm evil, or I have these doubts and I don't believe, but I can't tell anyone. I just found so much hidden shame and misery and sadness around Mormonism. Mm -hmm. And I had experienced it myself, and so I I just, there came a point where I just said, we got to fix this, we got to solve this. And so I literally resigned from my position at Microsoft, not knowing what I was going to do with my life, moved to Utah with the idea of finding a way to kind of be a part of the solution to this problem. Because that's how traumatic going through this was for me and my family. So I moved to to, um, Logan. Uh, got into a graduate program, uh, started my podcast, and it was with the podcast that it was like there was this huge balloon of pain in the sky. It was water balloon of pain in the sky, and it was like Mormon stories was like puncturing that that water balloon of pain. And all this, all the people came out of the woodworks uh, all over the world. Like John, I'll drive to Logan. If I can just have two hours of lunch with you, or I'll, I'll you know, I'm in China and, and or England, and a, a listener says I'll pick you up at the airport. You can sleep in my home. I'll drive you to every meeting you have if I can just talk to you on the car ride to and from wherever you're going. Like, because so many people were in pain, and it was then that I said I got to get into psychology because if people are confessing eating disorders, sexual addiction, divorce problems, home, you know, homosexual sort of challenges i need some training to be able to help these people work through their problems and so that's 2009 is when i started my psychology phd how how is it that a couple of things uh, i find interesting about this uh in regard to you uh so many people when that when their religion become becomes so, they feel betrayed by their religion they become bitter. They become angry. They become bitter. And that does not seem to have happened to you. You, you didn't become angry and bitter. Um, I think you're, you became disillusioned, but um, you, you didn't... Uh, you know what I'm saying? You know, uh, uh, how is it that you didn't become angry and bitter and just say, I get, I don't want to have anything to do with it. You kind of wanted to have even more to do with your religion somehow. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I think partly because I went through this in 2000, 2001, I had a few years to process my anger before I became a public figure. So you did, be, you, you were really I angry certainly, for a while. I certainly was angry. I don't know. Yeah, certainly, definitely. Now, I didn't have a, a public platform to show that anger, and I did internalize a lot of that. So I think you would have, 
you know, th- there was a point when I was working for Microsoft where I like never shaved. I wore I wore Birkenstocks. Oh my god! You oh, know, I just ordered a pair of Birkenstocks yeah. today. Just I was just depressed. I was yeah. depressed. So I internalized that anger. And then, yeah, I would try and, like, whenever I was with a family member who's a believer, I'd try and introduce a controversial oh, topic so or try did. and screw with their faith that's, a little bit. Yeah, and that's what I'm talking about. And I, I did go through that phase, but I just quickly realized it didn't help my relationships with anybody. It just created resistance with them. So I I think it's normal to be angry, uh, but I was just fortunate to be able to process that before I became, I a, public became a public figure. Right. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of people don't get over that hurdle you know people who have left the church i mean any church 10 15 years ago are still you know uh, angry about it or yeah and let me let me say what i've noticed is that the people who get really angry maybe it ruined their marriage maybe they lost their children over this maybe they were gay or lesbian and they went through reparative therapy and they feel like it it broke them in some significant way usually when someone's super angry for a long duration it's because some really horrible stuff happened to them ruined relationships because my wife was so supportive my 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 parents still love me my siblings still love me my children still love me i think that is a a privilege or a luxury that that allowed me to not have to go there yeah as uh, much as i uh, uh, as i've as i have talked about you to some other people you know they've asked me because i've met you before i've 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 listened to your podcasts uh, and i've i've read some of your stuff you know and i say well john is not doesn't seem to be an angry person and he uh, he seems to be a lucky guy in that his family ha- is still with him and um and he and they say well doesn't he, he doesn't counsel people to leave the church that's not what he's about um uh, and i think that's also a really um an admirable quality that you have. You're not going around encouraging people to leave their faith at all. That's not what you're about. It's it's more of you're you're trying to help people figure out how to live with themselves, whatever their choices are. No, I I really appreciate that as well. I um part of what's allowed me to stick around is that I don't feel like I've been damaged or scarred by Mormonism. I feel like it has been a huge blessing in my life. Like a lot of good things have happened to me and I feel like I had a great upbringing, very positive upbringing. So yeah, if people, if, if Mormonism is working for people, I, I want to celebrate and support them in whatever helps them find joy and meaning. My, my focus is on when Mormonism isn't working for people, you know? So if you're gay or lesbian and you're hearing these these messages that that can lead to self-loathing well it's that person that i want to say how can i help you find a a situation that's better that may involve leaving the church it may not same with people in faith crisis other sorts of things i just want to help people find joy and yeah if it's in the church i have no problem with that as a matter of fact there are and i found this when we had the discussion the panel discussion here there are plenty of uh gay lesbian uh people who are hurt, who feel hurt by uh, decisions that the LDS church has made, particularly recently, and who say, but I don't want to leave that church. I just don't want to do it. Yeah. Um, Our, my, my dissertation research was on LGBT, you know, gay, lesbian, bisexual Mormons. And we found that a full third of, of adult gay and lesbian Mormons remain active in the church. Yeah. So that's a lot, right? You would think that 
that issue alone would kick all of them out of the church. But no, one out of three stick yeah. with it. It's yeah, which is hard, kind of hard to fathom in a way. <laughs> Super hard to fathom. Yeah. Um, when the church basically seems to declare cultural war against you, yeah. and yet you remain loyal and faithful to mm-hmm. the institution, that's that's powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, even if I wanted people to leave the church, uh, the least successful way to do that would be to try and make people leave. Because when you do that, you just create resistance. Mm-hmm. People don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be nudged. They want to make their own decisions. So, not only do I not want uh, people to leave, but to try and make people leave, it's just ineffective. And yet you were accused by the LDS Church because eventually you were excommunicated. Um, you didn't seek that, uh, correct? You you didn't seek excommunication. No, I didn't want to be excommunicated. No. You would you would still be in the church today if they had not come to you? I would said, probably still be attending church today, yeah. raising my kids in the church if they had Although been. you had not attended church for a while no that's not true oh, uh, I, I was, thought you would i thought you would kind of stopped going i mean there through the 10 years of the podcast there were times where i was closer to the church and times where i kind of took little sabbaticals but during the time that leading up to the actual uh final investigation on me i was attending church with my family twice a month and taking our kids to church so it was the third investigation that made us just say, we're, we're done with this. The third investigation. Maybe walk us through. Yeah, so early on, early on in, in a couple years into Mormon Stories, let's just say around 2006. That's, that's the podcast. Uh, yeah. and, and mention that so yeah. people, if they want to find so it. So I started can. Mormon Stories podcast, mormonstories.org, 2005. Uh, at the time, I was teaching Elders Quorum, active in the church. I taught for three years. Uh, and so within the first two or three years of Mormon Stories podcast, my bishop, uh, Bishop Farmer, called me in and basically said, what is this you're doing? Are you trying to hurt the church? I think some members of the ward probably turned me in and complained about it. And uh, at the time, I was very committed to helping people stay in the church, actually. That was my goal at the time. So I asked my listeners to send in letters. I got hundreds of letters, and I shared them with my bishop and said, these are all people saying that I'm helping them stay in the church. So he basically said, okay, you can go. I won't pursue this any further. A couple years after that, probably around 2011, 2012, my state president, uh, Mark Jensen, called me in and, um, and said, I'm thinking about holding a disciplinary council on you and started another investigation. And that's when members of my ward were like, stalking me online and gathering evidence against me, kind of like the Nazis or Gestapo or Soviet Union. And they, they were they were literally gathering evidence and turning it in secretly to my leaders to try and get me in trouble. So that was really disturbing. And to my former stake president's credit, he went through about a year of meeting with me weekly where I would tell him my doubts, my fears, my questions, and then he would do his best to kind of either help me resolve them or show support. So that went on for about a year. And by the end of that time, he allowed me to baptize my son. He allowed me to remain in full fellowship and called off the investigations. Now, so that ended around 2012, uh, 2013. Um, And I thought things were pretty clear. But then I gave a TED Talk where I showed public support for same-sex marriage. I showed support for Kate Kelly and ordained women. 
And I started getting angry because it, the church started to go after same-sex marriage more publicly, and that just mm-hmm. was kind of a, a a problem for me. So I got more vocal in my my concerns about the church at the end of 2014. And, and during that time, I think the church got frustrated that my former state president wouldn't excommunicate me. So they actually released him early uh, and called oh. a new state president whose name is Brian Jensen. Um, You're it, always getting people in the church who are above you in trouble. I know, I know. <laughs> so they, I, I'm pretty sure they called a guy that they knew would, would stick it to me. And that, mm-hmm. that happened in 2014. And by early 2000, no, two, that was the end of 2013. By early 2014, uh, I was called in and told that by my bishop that the church was going to do another investigation, the third. So around January 2014 is when um, uh, that third investigation started, and that's when I said to my wife and kids, "I don't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to endure this." So we stayed attending up until that summer, but once the official disciplinary council was called. That's when we stopped going. Mm-hmm. And, and and this and I, I kind of remember from the news and stuff, this was, you mentioned Kate Kelly and ordained women, and um, kind of was all happy. You were all getting in trouble at the same time, right? Kate and I received our letters informing us of the disciplinary council one day apart from each other. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was summer of 2014. So you get, you get the axe. Yep. Did you appeal? I did appeal. And why did you appeal? Um, so if you think about like the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which was when 150 innocent men, women, and children were slaughtered by Mormon people in southern Utah, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to envision that that was just a local thing. Many people believe that, that upper-level leaders were involved. But at the end of the day, the way the church played it, they distanced themselves from the act and they pinned it on a local leader and said it was all that guy. Yeah. Um, and I just have a real problem with the way the church handles these bishops and stake presidents because it was clear to all of us that the command was coming from the top to excommunicate me, but then the church would always claim that they had nothing to do with it. So it allows plausible deniability where the, where the responsibility really lies because they can just point to the local guy. So basically, I wanted the, the first presidency to be accountable for that decision. And so my appeal wasn't because I necessarily wanted to keep fighting to remain a member, but it was just to have their signature on the act so that they couldn't blame a local leader. Mm-hmm. And I got it. They denied the appeal. Um, so so accountability is at the top. Um, can you envision yourself uh, ever going back? No, that's really... I mean, unless it became a completely different organization. Like, I... Part of what inspired me to do all this was my understanding of Reformed Judaism, which is, the, by the way, the, the largest branch of Judaism in the yeah. United States, where you can be an atheist. You can say, I don't even think Moses existed, who, by the way, was the founder of Judaism. Mm-hmm. And you can still bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah for your children. Sure. You can still be a part. So, like, if Mormonism had that sort of strain in it, I could see myself being a cultural Mormon and just enjoying the community. But as long as the church is sort of waging war against gay and lesbian people, subjugating women to second class, causing all this shame and stigma around sexuality and stuff, I just can't remain a member in good conscience. So it would have to be a very different organization. Um, 
What do you... Um, I get the, the LDS church at one point said you're entitled to your, your views. You're entitled to your views, but you went too far when you started enticing people away from the, the religion. Do you feel that you enticed people away from the religion? No, not at all. I mean, it, the what's difficult is the, and I said this in my stake president, it wasn't me who slept with a 14-year-old, right? It wasn't me who claimed to translate Egyptian papyrus in a fraudulent way. Those are the facts, and they're very damning for anyone who's willing to look at them objectively. So if talking about the church accurately is leading people away, then I guess I'm guilty. But um, if you look at 2016, now the church is publishing all these essays where it's coming clean about its history— you could argue that now the church is guilty of leading people out of the Why church. Why do you think they're doing that, by the way? Well, honestly, I think we held their feet to the fire because, um, you know, and there's this little story about how, um, you know, a friend of mine, Hans Matson, who's a who was an area authority in Sweden, lost his faith. So he was a member of the Third Quorum of the Seventy, one of the highest ranking European members ever to come out of the church. Hans Matson lost his faith around 2010, 2011. And he was ready to go public uh, as a former area authority that the church wasn't true. But what he decided to do was to try and engage the church and to get them to kind of own up to their problems and to start uh, talking about them honestly. So he came to me and together with some other friends, we we conducted a survey where we surveyed like 3,000 ex-Mormons to find out what caused them to leave. We ended up presenting the evidence of that survey to church headquarters and uh, we've been told very specifically that that initiative helped lead to the church publishing their essays. And what, what our basic finding was that we gave to the church was, yeah, there are a lot of historical problems. But, but the biggest problem was that people felt deceived. They felt lied to. It's one thing to say, wow, that polygamy is messy. It's another thing to say the church deliberately deceived me for decades and so I think we made a really compelling case to them that, that, they were, that they were betraying people's trust. And I think they realized, uh, you know, they, they just realized that the smarter thing to do would be to take what they're calling now an inoculation approach, which is a really bizarre metaphor because mm-hmm. it has to do with something being a disease and helping people sort of develop a tolerance to a disease. But putting that aside... I think they realized that if they could just gently introduce the difficult topics to people at a younger age with the right context, then they would sort of never be able to claim that the church deceived or, or kept things from them. And so I think that's, I think we and a lot of other people put their feet to the fire. They responded in a very strategic way, and now we have more transparency in the church. When you look at the, uh, the beginnings of any religion, the, the the very beginnings and it's easy it's easier to look at the beginnings of the LDS religion because it's so recent. There's there's a lot of historical documentation there that's recent and easy to find. It's not lost in the mists of ancient history. But when you look at the beginnings of any religion, you look at the beginnings of Scientology. You look at there's a lot of mysticism and and unusual things there of any religion isn't there yeah 
Um, there's a lot of now. Wait a minute, kind of stuff there. And yet, things grow up around religion. They grow up around those stories, those mystical stories, and practical ways of living grow up around them, and good advice and ways to live and and uh, rules of conduct and and things that are not all maybe the the way they begin are kind of suspect suspect of all any religion and yet things that grow up around them are kind of this is the way we conduct ourselves it's not just the lds religion is it no no and that's a i think honestly i can be as critical of religion as anyone but i think religion has evolved with mankind because it's very adaptive. It's a way to order things. It's a way to structure things. Yeah. It's a way to make sense of the universe, to make to provide meaning, to provide morality, to provide support for families. It resolves a lot of the existential problems about death and about purpose and about the afterlife. I think it, it performs incredibly positive in many ways, uh, structure and form and community, uh, that, that honestly, as much harm as I've seen, I don't think the answer to happiness for humanity is for religion to go away. A lot of people don't like to hear that, but I just don't think if we wave our wand and religion disappears that all of a sudden everyone's happier and healthier. I just don't think it works that way. Could you ever be an atheist? I mean, I don't, I don't love any of those terms, atheist or agnostic. Um, uh, no, I, uh, but, but. You know, I have a problem with this idea that God is an anthropomorphic personal being that knows each of us individually and that's out sort of orchestrating all the happenings in the in the world. Because there's just too much sadness and pain and destruction and, and misery out there to sort of feel good about that sort of God. So I certainly am an atheist when it comes to that sort of God. But, you know, there's a part of me that looks at how the universe and creation is unfolding and how even mankind seems to be progressing towards something better. And I, I don't know what's behind all that, but there's something, there's something moving us forward. There's something that seems to be, and, and it could be nothing. So I don't like the term agnostic or atheist, but I, I believe there's purpose and meaning to existence. I believe we're working towards something. I don't know what that is. I don't even have a label for it, hmm. but but that's kind of a leap of faith to just to believe that life has purpose and meaning. That me helping out another individual actually makes a positive difference. That's a leap of faith in a sense. I always I always had a, a I always thought it was odd that you know that we need to find physical evidence of the fact that uh, Christ was in the Americas. Uh, we needed to find physical evidence that um, uh, that because faith is what what's important, and we don't need physical evidence if we have faith. Yeah, faith is faith is that this this is true. We don't need to find find the evidence that Christ walked in America, that the Garden of Eden was in Missouri, or you know, why do we need that if we? believe that it's true why why do we need to know that there why do we need to believe really believe that there were golden plates 
Why, why do we need to, to have, this is our physical golden plates. We have faith that there were golden plates. We don't. Yeah, that's tricky. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, if if the church, let's just say the LDS church, if if the church were just this benign organization that all it did was like feed the hungry and the poor, build great communities, have great choirs, and just sort of bless humanity, mm-hmm. I think everyone would pretty much leave it alone. The problem is because of those material claims, because the church is claiming that God and angels founded the church through golden plates and that that means that we have the exclusive authority and are the one true church, which means that our modern day prophet speaks for God, which means that when our modern day church says that homosexuality is evil or that same sex marriage should be defeated or that women should be subjugated or whatever it is that they say, like people kill themselves or marriages get destroyed or People carry guilt and shame with them. And so the stakes are really high. So in in theory, it kind of doesn't – the material claims, you could argue they don't matter. But in practicality, because the stakes are so high in the lived lives of Orthodox-believing Mormons, for me, that's when the truth claims start to matter Mm -hmm. because because lives can be literally at stake. And and, and we all know that just just the November – 2015 policy decision that that we discussed on one of your shows has led to dozens if not more suicides just within that small time period we don't say led to but are associated with some of these suicides you you know that's just one of many examples where the stakes really are high and so and so that's why people raise the issues of truth claims i think so that's what's tricky about it. I want to ask you a couple of, couple of questions, and we'll wrap it up here. Uh, what What is an apostate? I think the technical term is someone who stands apart. So I think in the church's case, really what it came down to is kind of what you said earlier. It's not that I have doubts. It's not that even that I disbelieve. They don't care. They do not care if individual members. I mean, of course they want everyone to believe. But do they, I mean, are they going to excommunicate someone for having doubts or disbelief? Never. What they told me very explicitly was, it's that you're speaking publicly about your doubts. You're publicly disagreeing with us. You're publicly challenging our authority. And that's when it becomes a problem. And so an apostate is literally not someone who doubts, not someone who disbelieves, but it's someone who questions things that the church doesn't want questioned or that they uh, they question the authority of its leadership. So that's, why that's some, where I cross the line. And so that's why some uh, people who get gay married are apostates, because by getting gay married, you are, just by that act, standing apart because you're questioning. That means you question the, the, the doctrine, the authority of the church. You're defying... You're defying the church's... Uh, so you're automatically apostates yeah. if you get I mean, gay married. It's weird, because you can defy the church in a host of other ways. You can secretly drink, you can yeah. secretly have an affair. And that's what's crazy about this recent decision. You can yeah, murder you can murder somebody, you can sodomize a child and not, and not necessarily be excommunicated. So that's kind of where it's really bizarre is that for yeah. some reason two people engaging in committed long-term love is the thing that they're going to actually finger as automatic apostasy. Yeah. And that's, I think it's because it's tied to a lot of fears and, and, and self-interest that the church has. But, but that's what apostasy means. And that leads me to my other question, when you, the word fears. There seems to be 
a lot of fear going on right now in, to me, in the leadership. Uh, that's what I'm interpreting here uh, of the church. Am I misreading that? No, tons of fear. Yeah, they're trying to circle the wagons somehow. They're, they're. I get the feeling they feel as though they're losing a, they're losing a grip on things a little bit. Absolutely. Maybe not sure how to deal with the modern world. Yeah. Um, I'm not a prophet, but I would prophesy that the that uh, the the wrong side of history. They're getting to be on the wrong side of history here a little bit. Now, whether that I, I, I would say I'm not a prophet because. I'm pretty sure that the that the history that is being written right now is not so bad because it's a history that will ultimately be a history of peace and love and I'm talking about the same sex marriage and stuff. I'm pretty sure it's not so bad. I mean, I grew up I grew up in an, in a time when uh homosexuality was something to be a little scared of. I I would would, would admit that and you know, it took adjustments on my part to even as uh, even as early as uh, even as late as watching six feet under, and I would admit on the radio, you know, I mean, I don't really have a problem with it, but those two guys kissing on that show, it's just, a, you know, I kind of go, well, that's a, okay, okay, I have to get a little used to that, you know, see, because I, be, you know, but because of how we're conditioned, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what I, I mean, my mother, my mother taught me that there is nothing wrong with. With homosexuality. Wow, I mean, that's cool. I mean, she did teach me that. She's ahead of her time. But she also taught me to, to when I was a little kid, to you know, <laughs> just watch yourself in the bathroom if you're by yourself mm-hmm. and a little kid. I mean, she put some kind of fear in me a little bit. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, and I, and I don't know if that was right or it was probably wrong to, of her to do that. Well, but I mean, she just said, "Watch out for yourself." Yeah. But at any rate, uh, I think maybe there's a f- some fear there. That, I mean, there is fear there. And I think they're on the wrong side of history, and they just don't know it. Would yeah. you agree? Yeah. I, you know, you can really look back to our church's history. It's so ironic that we were founded on the principle that we have God's spokesman on our team. And, and God's still speaking to his prophet. And we're not like traditional Christians that have a closed canon where the Bible is the word and that's it and we're done. We are the ones that are receiving new revelations and it's an ongoing dialogue with God where he's keeping us up to date on the changes like that. That was the founding sort of principle of Mormonism. But if you look at how many revelations have been received since Joseph Smith died, it's been almost none, you know, um, and so what we've seen in modern Mormonism is a walking back from so many of our distinctive beliefs. Polygamy being a prime example. Polygamy was something we were willing to, to risk the church on, and eventually we abandoned it. Our position on blacks uh, or Native Americans was really uh, typical for its time, which was racist. Um, but we were really standing by that until the point where we kind of backtracked. And you can basically see any significant, whether it's feminism, women's right to vote, any of that stuff, 
that you can pretty much count that the church, you know, gay marriage, the church is always going to be kind of 30 years behind everybody else. That's like obvious to anyone who's an outsider who's looking in. Um, and I think there's probably a sense to which the church actually sees that. But here's the rub. Because we've put all our money down on the fact that our prophets speak with God, we've kind of painted ourselves into the corner because our prophets have gone on record condemning homosexuality for decades, right? And, and our prophets have gone on record saying it's men who hold the priesthood. And our prophets have gone on record saying that the Book of Mormon is scripture and that Native Americans are Lamanites. And so if, if, we're, if our whole money is on the fact that prophets speak to God and lead us, and we're willing to shed polygamy and, and all our distinctive doctrines, all we have left is authority. And so if the church is ever perceived as a group of men who simply cave to the whims of social progress, they're done. They've got nothing left. They literally have nothing left. They become just another vanilla Christian Protestant sort of, you know, just yeah. sort of boring stereotype. So, so be admitting that, that God was wrong or God. Yeah, that they know. were wrong and that and that they really don't have a connection with God like they right. have told us for over 150 years. Or maybe it could be, oh, look, here's a. Yep, here's a prophecy. It was under this book all this time. <laughs> I was uh, the couch it, it, it had came one side a long time ago, and we just holding up the coffee table and no, yeah, gosh dang it. But I, I feel sorry for them because they're really painted into a corner. They cannot make fundamental changes to conform with modern social progress without undermining their own authority. And once their authority's gone, they've really they've got nothing, and so they they are going to become more and more retrenched in their positions because it's all they have left. It's like the shrinking territory that they're defending. Will the membership shrink because of it? It is shrinking. I just got back yeah. from England, uh, all over Europe. You know, you, you can kind of think of Europe as the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. Europe led in, you know, ab- ab- abolishing slavery. Europe le- led in giving women the right to vote. Europe led in civil rights and in, in you know, feminism. And they've led in same-sex marriage. Yeah. You know, eight or nine European countries legalized same-sex marriage before us. Well, how's religion doing in, in Western Europe? Not, it's dying, strong, right? Yeah. And Mormonism, you know, uh, Scotland and England, it's got like a 10 to 15% activity rate. Germany and France and, and Russia, and, and it's all the same story. Stakes are collapsing. collapsing. Missions are, are being ended. Wards are shrinking. Wards are being collapsed. In in the UK, membership is actually declining. So if you look at actual membership, you would think that they would still cook the books and show a rise in membership, even if. But no, actual number of members recorded by the church is actually in decline in Western Europe, and I think that that they're just ten or fifteen years ahead of us. So. So what we're going to see, we are seeing a decline of the church in Western Europe, in Japan, and in Korea. Right now, the only thing keeping the church growing in the United States is our birth rate. We have an average of three children uh, per family, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's what keeps us in the game. Our activity rates um, are abysmal, and all of our missionary activity, both in the United States and Western Europe and across the world, is oriented towards developing countries even if you go to England or France, who's getting baptized? It's the immigrants from Africa. It's the immigrants from the Philippines. Who do they target here in the United States? Same deal. So we are be, we're going to become a third world church where the sort of the white entrenched 
power structure remains because there's so much benefit to do that. But we're going to fray along the edges outside of Utah. We're fraying all, all across Europe. And slowly we're going we're gonna to go into decline, just like every other major Christian tradition. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, my generation, my four best friends, all Mormon missionaries, really there, all gone now. I don't, somebody said that it, uh, though it's, it, it in, I've, I don't know what this theory is or what, that it, it somehow doesn't matter because all that really matters is building temples. <laughs> uh, that's really what the church is about. Is is building? T- what is that theory? Do you know anything about that? That sounds kind of weird, speculative kind of thing. But but even temple building has de- decreased well, significantly. Yeah. So if that's the case, we're in trouble on that front too. Now that doesn't mean that the church is going away. If you saw Spotlight, which is one of the best movies I think no in the history of Hollywood, really good. Really it, good. it shows that there can be institutionalized pedophilia at the level of like 7% of the of the catholic priests across the boston parish and the church survives so mormonism yeah. actually isn't going away right it's just going to be in slow decline and it's going to become more of a third world religion than it is a religion in the developed world but it's not going away anytime soon so those who want to celebrate it's our early demise. They're just no. kind of fooling themselves. So and, and it it's will, here to stay. And it will bring comfort to those who still need it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and for those people in developing countries that need it, they're going to benefit from it. So I wish the church well. I just also, for those who can't abide by it anymore for whatever reason, what I do now as a, as a mental health professional, as a podcaster, is just help people in their transition. Because... For those for whom it works, bless them. But for those who uh, need to leave or need to change, that's difficult because they risk divorce. They risk alienation from their parents. They risk relationships with children. Sometimes they risk their job, their livelihood, um, and their own mental health. Because it's not like all these people that leave the church just all of a sudden become happy and healthy. You can... You can start acting in ways that really undermine your own happiness. But right? you can be happy and you can oh, be healthy. Totally. Yeah. But sometimes it helps to get friends, it, it helps to get community, and it helps to, to, to discover resources that help you sort of keep from falling into some of the common pitfalls that can really be problems. Mm-hmm. So that's what Mormon Stories and Mormon Transitions and the work that I do is about now is helping people who need to make that transition do so in a, in a your, healthy way. Your website is? So the main one's mormonstories.org. We also have mormontransitions.org, which is a blog and a podcast about making that transition uh, away from orthodoxy, either towards progressive Mormonism or out of the church. Mm-hmm. And we have, other, we have Mormon Mental Health. We have Mormon Matters. The Open Stories Foundation, which is my nonprofit, has uh, seven or eight podcasts and blog websites. There's, there's a wealth of information. Yeah, for, yeah. for wherever you are. If you're trying to remain faithful in the church, we have a podcast called A Thoughtful Faith and a podcast called Mormon Matters that models healthy, constructive engagement with the church. But if you want to leave the church or transition away, we have Mormon Transitions. We have a Gay Mormon Stories podcast where it's just about the LGBT Mormon experience. So we're trying to just... Fill the holes where the church won't go mm-hmm. to give people what they need to find whatever joy they need to find. Right. John DeLynn, pleasure. Thank you, Brother Bill. <laughs> Keep up the good work. <laughs> uh, it's uh, the Let's Go Eat show. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, you know, you can always find us on iTunes and Stitcher. It helps if you go to iTunes and give us a rating there. Uh, thanks to my son, Dylan, for producing the thanks, show. Thanks, Dylan. Welcome. Um, my pleasure. 
And uh, anything else we need to? Oh, thanks. thanks. 50 West, we ate about uh, five pounds of French fries. Yep, a lot of. They have good fry sauce here. Yeah, yeah. they do it right. They do the fry sauce right. They good put a little. Utah fry sauce. They put a little seasoning on the French fries. It's really good. Uh, that's about it. Uh, I got to go pick up my new son at school. This is my old son. I have a new son nice. too. Nice. Uh, I have I have old kids and new kids. So congratulations. Yeah. Uh, so good. that's it. Remember, if you're pouring the drinks, always make mine a double. Ha, <laughs>